Well, if you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, we've been going through 1 John uh, verse by verse, and we are in chapter 2. You know, I can't imagine what it would be like to grow up in a family where no one ever said, I love you. You never heard those words. Where no one ever expressed their affection with hugs or with uh, appreciation through gifts or uh, just a commitment of staying faithful through thick and thin. But I'm sure there are families out there like that. Uh, Maybe some of you grew up in one of those families and for your whole life you've longed to hear those words that we all long to hear. I love you. The truth is we never outgrow those words. Um, We never uh, find a substitute for those words. We say I love you and we demonstrate love in so many different ways. Uh, Expressions of love are the lifeblood of relationships. Without love, a marriage or a family or a friendship will shrivel and die. Uh, Back in verse 3, it says, we know that we have come to know him. So John is saying, and we've talked about this before, that it's possible in the Christian life to have an inward certainty that you belong to the God of the universe and that you will spend eternity with him in heaven. Uh, In chapter two, John begins by telling us that our goal is to not sin, but that when we do, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. That's what it says in verses one and two of this chapter. And then starting in verse three, through the end of the chapter, John lays down three visible measurable tests by which we can judge if we're really a Christian, if we're really following Christ. Last week, we looked at the moral test or the behavioral test. That means that our character will be changing. Uh, There will be changes in the way we live our lives. So here are some questions for you. They're not on the outline. Just listen to these. Uh, the questions that you can, that are self-reflective questions that you can ask yourself this coming week when you are uh, relating to somebody, when you're in, uh, in a conversation with someone or dealing with someone on one level or another. Um, are you getting less irritable with people in general, with this person you're talking to? Are you less worried Are you less afraid, less selfish? Do you have more compassion than you had a year ago, last year, whenever it was you became a Christian? Has that been growing? Have you been growing in self-control? Are you growing in Christ-likeness? That's what John says is the first test as to whether or not you're a genuine Christ follower. Uh, It's about morals and behavior. 
The second test begins in verse 7 that we're looking at today. And the second test is about love. Uh, I encourage you to <clears throat> follow along with me as, as we read here in just a second. But I'll just say this, that Jesus said in John 13, By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So that's a great question. Are, we, are you loving the people that are around you? Are you loving those in your family, those not in your family? And so you've got this on your outline, if you're taking notes, I hope you are, that love is the mark of a Christian. Love is the mark of a Christian. Does the one who says he loves God also love others? Uh, if he does, this is another test that a person has been made alive by God. If someone does not love, then John says, they have no more right to consider themselves a child of God than does the person who says they know God but has no desire to be obedient to God's commands and, and to become Christ-like in their lives. So follow along as we read 1 John 2 beginning at verse 7. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command but an old one which you have had since the beginning. The old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. It's truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light. And there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But any, anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. This is God's word. So not just for John, but all of the writers in the New Testament uh, recognize the importance of love. And, and so love is almost like the, the, you could think of it as the circulatory system of the body of Christ. That's what love is. And that system in the body makes sure that each cell is nourished. If we don't have blood, we don't have life. If we don't love one another, we're not believers. We don't have the life of Christ in us. So, I had a discussion with somebody uh, this last week about what a healthy church is. I think by the grace of God, we have a healthy church. And I'm thankful for that. And at the top of the list of what makes us a healthy church is that we love one another. I've had people who have said to me, man, it's, it's evident that you guys love each other. Just by standing out and seeing people interact with each other, uh, it's, it's obvious there's a lot of love here. That's by the grace of God. But I, I think, I mean, what I see is we're a healthy church. We love each other. We all know um, what it's like not to love or not to receive love when there's anger or bitterness. It's like what Frederick Beekner says. He says you're eating, it's like eating a, this amazing meal at a table. Uh, this is what he's describing bitterness. And then what you realize you're eating is yourself. Because that's what bitterness does. It, it, it eats us up. It destroys us from the inside. So it's like the spiritual, when the spiritual arteries get clogged, love is the only thing that will unclog them. We all know what it's like when a, a word is overused. 
Uh, it loses its meaning. Someone said that words are, are like coins, that the more they're in circulation, the more they wear out. And so words are important. Uh, the word love is like that, but we talk about things we love in, 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 in it's on so many different levels. Uh, we, we might say we love uh, Chick-fil-A. I know that that's maybe what we all have in common. But we also say we love uh, our spouse, or we love our child, or we love a parent. So we have the same word, but it has a lot of different meanings. But the Greeks were not like that, because they had four different words for love. You have them on your outline. The word eros refers to sexual love. In the Bible, think of of, uh, Song of Solomon. Uh, The word phileo is friendship love. That's the love that's described in John chapter 11 between Jesus and his friend Lazarus. Uh, You also have the word storge, which is the Greek word that's that's used, but it's not found in the Bible. Uh, And it means family love, familiar love. It's the love you have for the people in your family, in your greater family. It's the love, actually, storge love is that love you have for the people that you're sitting around right now, that you you see every week and you're, you're familiar with them, and that's called storge love. And then agape love is the love that John uses throughout his letter that is a sacrificial love. And he uses it to describe perfectly the love of God. Because God is love. It says in 1 John 4, 8. That's a definition of love. God is love. And he uses the word agape there. Uh, Someone has said if if agape love, uh, agape love doesn't say, I'll love you if you do this or that. I'll love you if. Agape love does not say, I'll love you because of. I'll love you because uh, you're my friend. I'll love you because you're uh, beautiful or whatever. But agape love says, I will love you in spite of. That's on your outline. I'll love you in spite of the fact that sometimes you're a jerk. God loves us in spite of our sin. So the first thing we learn about love in verses 7 and 8 is that love is both an old commandment and a new one. John writes in verse 7 again, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new commandment, an old one which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. So something that is old and familiar can be given a new freshness and newness like never before. Think about a piece of music. Maybe something that you're very familiar with, some song that you could sing the words to, and then you go to see a concert and there's an orchestra playing and, and the, uh, an amazing conductor and amazing musicians. And all of a sudden, that song that you're so familiar with takes on a new life as you hear this orchestra play it. And it's just, it, it, it gives it a, a, a new, you have a new joy as you're listening to this song. Or a dish of food could be the same way. There's maybe something that you're very familiar with. And then you go into a restaurant, you order that because you're very familiar with it. And then you taste it and you go, wow, there are tastes in here I've never tasted before. And I know what this is. I love this dish, but now I really love this dish. And you know that there's some culinary genius behind this who has given this a new taste and, a, and, the, and it, you have a new experience of joy as you, as you taste it. Well, John is saying it's that way with love. It's something old, yet something new, in terms of its quality, in terms of its authority. 
On one occasion, there was a young man who came up to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, your strength, and your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus was quoting the old commandment. Uh, and you've got the two references on your outline, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus 19. So John is in effect saying, I'm writing an old commandment that's as old as the Old Testament, goes all the way back to the law, but it's also a new commandment because Jesus invested it with new meaning by his life and by his death on the cross for us. That gives love a new meaning. Jesus gave this commandment to his disciples uh, in the upper room after he'd washed his disciples' feet. He said to them in John 13, a new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. So Jesus is giving it that old commandment a new meaning, his new life, if you will. He's saying if you want to be great, wash feet. That goes against what we think of when we think of that. Goes, definitely went against what the Jews thought of to love. The Jews were like, we, we, we love our friends, we love the people, but we don't love our enemies. And so that's what Jesus makes clear that this love, the love of Jesus, and this is on your outline, Jesus' love is unique and it's revolutionary. It was revolutionary in his day. What John is saying is that the nature of your relationship with God should determine the nature of your relationship with other people. You love God, then you should love other people. So he's saying, are you, and this is a question we can ask, are you in the process, it's a process, but are you loving your neighbor? Are you loving the people that are around you? You say, who's my neighbor? Well, the people you work with. The people in your neighborhood, the people you live with, those are your neighbors. Are you loving them? John says that's a test to know whether you're, <clears throat> whether you're a true believer. <clears throat> I've seen this happen so many times where people will come to me and they'll say, you know, Kenny, I'm having a hard time loving someone. I need your counsel. How can I love them? And I'll say, you know what? Uh, you need to pray for them. You need to pray that the Holy Spirit that is in you will love them. Um, you need to pray that God's love if you have the Holy Spirit, you're, you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And look at the next verse on the outline. In fact, let's read that out loud together. Uh, Romans 5.5. 5. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So I'm saying, I'll say to that person, you need to pray and ask God for a supernatural love for the person you're having a hard time loving. God will do that. The Holy Spirit lives in you. His love is shed abroad in your heart. You have the power of God in you to be able to love people that are hard for you to love. Maybe even people you don't like. And so, let me ask you this question. Who do you need to pray to have a supernatural love for? Is there someone in your life? There's somebody in everybody's life. So who is it in your life right now that you need to pray for and ask God, God, give, will you give me a supernatural love for that, this person? I want to draw on the Holy Spirit's power, on the love of God that has been shed abroad in my heart, and I want to love these people with your love. I can't do it on my own power. 
I need your strength to do it. And remember that the one who's giving this command is the one who did the greatest acts of love, one of the, the greatest act of love ever by dying on the cross for your sin. That's how much God loves you. Agape love is unselfish in nature. And it gives, it expects nothing in return. And that's really hard to do. It's really hard to expect nothing in return. We want to be acknowledged. We, we want to be noticed. And I think we, we're not more Christ-like than when we love and don't expect something in return. Paul makes this super practical in Philippians chapter 2. And again, he uses Jesus as the example. And he says this in, in Philippians 2, don't be selfish. <clears throat> don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. And then what's the next verse? Have the same mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 2.5. So again, he's using, he says, look at Jesus. If you want the, the new commandment, if you want to see what it's like to love with Jesus' love, then look at Jesus. So God's love for us never ends regardless of our sinfulness. I've had people come to me and they've said, Kenny, you know what? I don't think God can ever forgive me because I've sinned. My, my sin is so great. I want to tell you what, your sin may be great, but God's grace is even greater than your sin. No matter what you've done, God's love never ends regardless of what we've done, regardless of our sinfulness. The false teachers, the Gnostics that John is writing against as he writes this letter, they were saying knowledge is all that matters. It doesn't matter how you act toward people. As long as you in your mind are loving them, then that's all you need. Uh, you you don't, don't worry about things like sin. That doesn't really matter. All that matters is what you think in your mind. You see how warped that is? That was warped thinking. And Paul gives this church in Corinth a, a reminder, uh, the church in Corinth a reminder about this when he says in 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So you want to build each other up and you love each other. It's not our knowledge that will attract people to Christ. When, when you are talking to somebody, they don't walk away and you're sharing Christ with them. They don't walk away and say, oh, wow, uh, I, I want to have knowledge like that. I want to become a Christian. No, that's not what attracts somebody to Christ. They, they see the love that you have and they, they, that's what is like a magnet that draws them to faith. It was like that for me when I went on a retreat when I became a Christian. I was, some friends invited me and I was blown away by the love that everybody had for me. I didn't feel like I had to earn it. They were just, they were just pouring out their love for me. And, and I, I, I felt that that attracted me to, to Christ, to them. Basically, every day we have, every day that we live, we have opportunities that open up in front of us to love people the way Jesus loved people. But, but, but what do we do? How do we love? How do we make them feel? That's a question that we need to, to answer, ask ourselves. Um, so what's the connection between love and obedience? You've got this on, on your outline. If you love God, you should be able to love your neighbor. If you love your neighbor, 
You're not going to steal from him. You're not going to covet his things. You're not going to commit adultery with his wife. You're not going to, to, to bear false witness against him. That's why Jesus said that the, all the commandments can be summarized by those two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we're called to do. In other words, if you love your neighbor, then all the other commandments fall into place. That's why, it's, that's why those two commandments are the most important. So when Jesus said the two commandments are, it's because all the other commandments hang on those two commandments. Um, and remember, agape love that he's talking about isn't based on feelings. It's based on unconditional love. It's based on, on communicating uh, by action. John, a little bit later, in fact, it's maybe on the same page that you're on right now, in chapter 3, verse 18, John says, little children, don't just say you love one another, but show it by your actions. Have you ever said or heard it said, I know everybody has, actions speak louder than words? That's because it's biblical. It's true. Actions do speak louder than words. John is saying that when it comes to love. And then verse 8, yet I am writing you a new command its truth is seen in him, and him is Jesus. And so you have this on your outline, the greatest definition of love is Jesus. God the Son. God is love, and Jesus is love. We see Jesus, in, and we see, we think of love, and we're, we're loving, we have this new commandment in Jesus. So if you really want to know what love is about, that means you have to read the Gospels. You have to know what Jesus did when he loved and how he loved. And when we read the Gospels, we'll learn that. We'll learn about Jesus. <laughs> That's where we see love embodied, right? Just think of the people Jesus loved. He loved Mary Magdalene with her shady past. Uh, he loves the rich young ruler that we just talked about. He loved Nicodemus, the religious Pharisee. Uh, he loved Zacchaeus, the greedy tax collector. And you know, tax collectors were hated in the first century. Um, kind of the same today. Sorry if you work for the IRS. No, nothing intended there. But uh, in the first century, they were hated because not only would they take your money for the government, they would take as much as they could for you because they wanted to make themselves rich as well. And what does Jesus do with Zacchaeus? He goes to eat in his home. You would never go into the home of a tax collector. You would never want to be that associated with them. In fact, you wouldn't even want to communicate that you even like them. But Jesus goes and eats in, their, in his home. And then the woman at the well. You know, women in the first century were not treated with any respect at all. You know what a, how, how a rabbi communicated to a woman? He didn't speak to them. He only spoke to, to his wife and then probably not even her in public. And what does Jesus do with the woman at the well? He speaks to her. He introduces himself as the one who is the living water and gives her life. And think about the 12 disciples. If we were going to pick 12 men to change the world, I don't think we would have picked the 12 Jesus picked. He picked Peter who at the moment when Jesus needed him the most, denied Jesus. He picked doubting Thomas, 
who said he wouldn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead unless he could stick his finger in, in, the, in his hands and see the nails. He wanted to see it. He said, the only way I'm going to believe it is if I see it. And then the one that blows me away the most is Judas. Jesus picked Judas. And you know what, what really, when I think of Judas, what, what strikes me so deeply about this is that Jesus is sitting around the table with his disciples at the Last Supper. And remember, he had lived with them for three years. For three years, he had lived with the, with the disciples. And not once, even knowing that Judas would betray him and from a human point of view be responsible for his death, Jesus never gave one hint ever that Judas was the one who would betray him. So when Jesus says at the Last Supper, one of you will betray me, I would think, you would think that every eye would be looking at Judas. We know it's you, Judas. We knew it all the time because of those subtle hints we picked up from Jesus along the way. What do they say? Is it I? Am I the one who's going to betray you? So not one time in the, all the years, all the months, the weeks, the, all the walking they did together, not one time did Jesus give a hint that Judas would be the one that would betray him. That's how much Jesus loved Judas. That's how much he loved the disciples. We all know that we should love our friends, but Jesus taught us in Matthew 5 that we should love our enemies as well. What did Jesus pray on the cross? He, he prayed, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He prayed for the Jewish leaders who wanted to kill him. If you were having a face-to-face -face conversation across a table from someone, you were close to them, you were talking to them, sharing the gospel with them, and they were to spit in your face because something you said angered them, would I be able to say, would you be able to say, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing? That's what Jesus said. That's what he did. We have this example that's so powerful of Christian love that goes way beyond what we can do as humans. And Jesus said this in Matthew 5. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors love other corrupt tax collectors. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even the pagans do that. Christian love has to go beyond loving those who are just in our circle of friends. It's also, uh, it's also loving the person who isn't easy to love. So let me ask you that right now. There's someone in your life, because there's someone in everyone's life, that is not easy to love. Who is it for you right now that is not easy to love? Think about that. Pray for that person. Pray that when you have the opportunity to interact with that person, that you will love them with the love of Christ. That you can draw on the Holy Spirit in you to, to love them. You know, there was an archbishop who was hearing the confessions of three boys who were hanging around the church because their parents were in the church, but they weren't Christians. 
And uh, they made a joke out of confessing their sins to the archbishop. And they came and they made up all these sins. They were confessing all these terrible, horrible sins that they'd, they had done. They hadn't done any of them. And the archbishop knew that. And then the archbishop, who was hearing this confession in this Catholic setting, said to the third one as he came in, and he confessed his sins. He said, you know, at the end of, of our cathedral, there's a, 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 a large picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. I want you to go up to that picture, and I want you to stand in front of it, and I want you to look right into the eyes of Jesus. And I want you to say three times, you did this for me, and I really don't care. So he walked down and he said that to the, looked right in the face of Jesus and said, you did that for me and I really don't care. And then he said it a second time. And then he was going to say it a third time and he broke down and wept. He couldn't say it a third time. And the archbishop as he was telling this story, he said, the reason I know that story so well is I was that third boy. I was the one who couldn't say, you did that for me and I just don't care that much. And he said, all of a sudden, I was gripped. He was gripped by the love of God. He was gripped by what Jesus did for him on the, on the cross, which is being gripped by the love of God. And when you're gripped by the love of God, it changes you. Somehow we get this sense that we've been gripped by, by not just Christ, but by his love, by God's love for us. That's how much God loves you. He loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for you, for your sins. And this is not only true of Jesus. Look at the verse, verse eight again. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him. In the next three words, and in you. It's seen in you. That's the way the love of God should be seen in the people who love Jesus and are following him because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And we can do this, like we've said, only by the power of God. And if you're a Christian who has the Holy Spirit living in you, you can do that. Are you doing that? Are you loving the people that are hard to love that are in front of you with the love of God? The longer and deeper, the longer we walk with the Savior, then the broader and the deeper should be our love for others. The second thing we learn about love is that Christian love, number two on your outline, comes from being in a completely new realm. John is saying that love is a sign of real Christianity because love is a sign of being in a whole new realm. So look at verse nine. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. So what does it mean that they've moved from darkness into light? The Bible says when you become a Christian, you, it's like you're translated into a whole new realm. In other words, when you become a Christian, it's like you're entering into a whole new way of life. You're now a part of a different reality. 
It's an entire transformation. It's, it's a different sphere that you're living in. It's a different way of understanding, a different way of living. So here's an example. A, a realm is a religion, I'm sorry, religion, a region where some influence is ruling. When a person gets drunk, uh, they are under the rule of alcohol. Uh, alcohol is a depressant. So everything that person is thinking, everything they're doing, everything they're saying, is, they're being controlled by another realm, by the realm of alcohol. You know, I just said when you become a Christian, you get translated into a new realm. So what does that mean to be translated into a new realm? I think the best verse about it is the next verse on your outline, Colossians 1.13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom or the realm of the, of the son he loves. So what, in other words, what it means to be a Christian, and this is on your outline, is that you're in a whole new world. You're now seeing everything in light of Jesus. Everything. You're seeing everything in light of him. So you may be going through a hard time right now. I don't know what that hard time is, but generally we're either going, coming out of a hard time or going into a hard time. So I don't know what the hard time is for you, but as a Christian in this new realm, we have a way of looking at the hard things that we go through in another light. We don't look at them in the same way. Now, as a Christian, we say, you know, the only real tragedy would be if I didn't know Christ personally. And I do know Christ personally, so this isn't, this tra- the biggest tragedy is, has been avoided. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and so I know that I can, with the power of Christ, make it through this hard time. And it's the same thing with successes. Before, I would say, wow, look at me. I'm, I, look, who, look at the success I've had. But now, as a Christian, I say, you know what? Um, this is a success was a gift. I know that it was a gift from God, ultimately. And I'm going to enjoy it for a season, but it may not last. And I recognize that. And the way you look at everything is utterly new. Because you're in a new realm, and now you're seeing and observing everything in the light of Jesus. And when you're seeing everything from the perspective of this new realm, then in this realm, you cannot hate your brother or sister. It's impossible in the new realm. So you've, you've, in that area, you've gone over to the darkness. And you need to say, okay, I need to, I need to confess this sin. I need to get over into the light and stay in the light. When you're looking at what Jesus has done for you and you're keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus and remembering that he has brought you to live in the light, then you have the power to forgive. You have the power to be kind. You have the power to be warm and be full of grace as you interact with people. Even people you, in your, the power of your own self, can't love. You can't love them. This is what happens when you're living in this new realm. You might have great doctrine, you might, but you, if you don't have love, you're kidding yourself. You're not walking in the light. Jesus makes the point that our response to others is evidence that we are a genuine Christian. Verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. And the word hates there is present ongoing. It's like we hate him and we're not going to stop hating him. We're going to keep hating him. 
And you can't have hate in your heart at the same time that you have love in your heart. And if we're not careful over time, anger can turn to resentment and bitterness, and we don't want that to happen. It ends up poisoning our entire lives. And so consistent hatred for people, it may be evidence that we're not a Christian. In other words, if hatred characterizes your life, then you're, and you're in the dark spiritually, then you're not living according to the light of the gospel. There's no place for even a, a, a trace of hatred in the church, period. One commentator said it this way, our brothers or sisters in Christ can't be disregarded. They are part of our landscape as believers. The question is, how do we think about them? Maybe we consider them as negligible. Maybe we consider them with contempt or as a nuisance or an enemy. Or do we consider them and treat them as a brother or sister in Christ? As a brother or sister, their needs are our needs. And their interests are our interests. They must be loved. And John says there are two characteristics of the one who loves. First of all, they abide in the light. They're not only enlightened by the gospel, uh, and thus a true Christian, but they obey the commands of Jesus to love others and live in the light to stay in the light. And the second thing, in such a Christian, there is no cause for stumbling. So we look at believers around us who love well, and it pushes us to love others well, because we see the example of other believers. It's like it says in Psalm 119, great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. And verse 10, Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. Simply put, John says in verse 10 that living in the light means loving your brother and sister. Especially your brother, he's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. It's like Paul says in Galatians 6, do good to all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. Uh, verse 11, but anyone who hates a brother or sister in the darkness and walks around in the darkness, they do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. So they're in the darkness, they walk in the darkness, and they're stumbling around in the darkness. They, they don't have any direction in their lives. So when you hate someone, you are not in God's will. Uh, one commentator said it like this, we are never more like Jesus than when we love like Jesus loved. So let me ask you these questions. Do you love God's people? I know you love them enough to come and worship with them because that's what we're doing together this morning. But do you love them enough to serve them? Do you love them enough to pray for them? Do you love them enough to, to forgive them? To bear with them when they go through hard times? Jesus said, greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. And Paul says it so clearly in 1 Corinthians 13, passage you know, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
You know, watching a trapeze, I've, I'm, like I'm sure many of you have been to the circus and seen trapeze artists. They're really fun to watch, and you just wonder at their dexterity to catch each other in the air, and, and you gasp when they, somebody misses and they fall, and they fall on the net. Um, they bounce back, and they'll get back up there. So just using that as an analogy in Christ, it's like we live on a trapeze. And, and the whole world should be able to watch us and say, look how they live together. Look how they love one another. Look how those husbands lo- love their wives and treat their wives. Look how the, they're the best workers at their jobs. They're known for that. Look how they're the best neighbors. They're the best students. Whatever it is, they, they look at this. And in other words, to live on the trapeze is showing the world how we live as Christians. And maybe sometimes we miss and we fall, but it's like that net is the blood of the Lord Jesus that forgives us. And, and Jesus says, okay, I forgive you. Now get back up and, and swing some more. Let the world see what you're doing. And both the net and the ability to stay on the trapeze are works of God's grace. And of course, we can't all be sleeping on the net. We can't be sleeping at all on the net, I should say, because then maybe we're not even a, 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 somebody that, we're not a trapeze artist if we're always sleeping on the net. So the last, in the last verse is the word walk, and that suggests that some, there's got to be some practical steps to not live in darkness, and they're on your outline. Um, it's impossible to speak about love in the Christian sense and not at least suggest some ways to make it very practical. So, number one, when a Christian has failed to love a brother or sister in Christ and has acted wrongly toward them, they will go and ask forgiveness. Is there somebody that you've offended, that you think you might have offended, and you need to go and ask their forgiveness? Do it today. Make a call, whatever needs to happen. Second one, when we're the one offended, we offer forgiveness quickly. Do you offer forgiveness quickly? Here's the catch. Do you offer it quickly even when the person hasn't asked you to forgive them? Sometimes they never will. And if you don't forgive them, that's when it turns into bitterness. That's when it becomes ugly. That's when you destroy yourself. So we need to all be quick to forgive. Who do you need to be quick to forgive? right now, in your life. And then finally, when we, must, we must show love in practical ways, even when it's costly. So what is your love costing you right now? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want love in our lives to be the proof of your presence, the presence of the life of God in us, the life of Christ in us. Thank you for the inward certainty you give us that we belong to you and will spend eternity with you. Thank you for Jesus, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Help us, Father, to grow in Christ's likeness and to love the way you loved. 
Thank you for the love of God that has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, not just to say we love other people, but really love them and show it by our actions. Lord, thank you for rescuing us from the dominion of darkness and bringing us into the realm of the kingdom of your Son. Please help us to see everything in our lives from that perspective. And if somehow, Lord, you've spoken to people's hearts this morning to draw them to yourself, may they respond right now by faith and receive you as Savior and Lord. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. And this is from the author of 1 John in the book of Revelation. He writes, to him who sits on the throne, to the lamb who was slain, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of the day.